Before I start this week's podcast, just the usual word of thanks to Sora Shimazaki, who took the photograph which adorns the podcast cover art. Hello and welcome to This Week in Financial Crime. I'm your host, Chris Kirkbride. Actually, it's been an interesting and varied week this week. Not a huge amount of news, but what is out there has been incredibly interesting. Money laundering really takes centre stage with the mutual evaluation reports of the Netherlands and Germany. There's more from the insolvency service going after COVID-19 bounce-back loan scammers. And more news on action by the Gambling Commission in keeping its house in order. Also, if you're looking for some excitement in the world of beneficial ownership transparency, then there are a couple of dates for your diary for the upcoming week or so. Start with Russian sanctions. In the UK, I think we can finally start to ease down the sanctions discussion because it certainly seems to be winding down. It indicates that policymakers feel as though they've gone as far as they can do, or at least dare to do, on the sanctions fronts. A couple of licences this week. First, general licence Crown Servants, Contractors and their family members allows a Crown Servant, Contractor, Family Member or Visiting Family Member to carry out activities in their personal capacity in Russia, which would otherwise be prohibited. And secondly, general licence on banking fees, where a bank may take the payment for of service fees from accounts frozen under the Russian regulations arising from the routine holding or maintenance of those accounts. Beyond the UK, a couple of interesting stories. That's to say that there's nothing new in terms of sanctions, licences or anything like that, but a request from the Dutch city of The Hague for a temporary exemption from EU sanctions. The Hague has a gas supply contract with Gazprom, the Russian energy supplier, and it's struggling to find a replacement supplier for its gas. The contract must end on the 10th of October this year as the EU sanctions grace period for the establishment of alternative supplies comes to an end. An EU-wide tender in June-July this year didn't attract bids to fulfil the supply contract, which leaves them in a bit of a hole, really. Anyway, the European Commission hasn't commented on the story. And finally, this is an interesting one. The super yacht, which was owned by Russian oligarch Dmitry Pumpiansky, there you go, has been announced uh, that there was an auction for it this week in Gibraltar. The office of uh, the Admiralty Marshal in Gibraltar announced that 63 bids were received for Azioma, which was the name of the yacht. The sale was at the request of the U.S. investment bank J.P. Morgan, which claims it sold around 20 million U.S. dollars by Pompianski. I wasn't one of the bidders, just in case anybody was wondering. Now, money laundering. It's been a good knockabout week for money laundering, actually. Uh, we'll start with news that the Wolfsburg Group has published its transaction monitoring request for information best practice guidance. Uh, this request for information guidance, all of the following is taken from the document itself, uh, is focused primarily on inquiries initiated as a result of transaction monitoring. An important goal is to improve the awareness about the value that RFIs, or inquiries, provide in a correspondent banking relationship to present best practice guidance for both issuing and respondent institutions and to improve the overall effectiveness of the RFI process. While this document deals with correspondent banking, the guidance 
can also apply to other payments-based relationships. The document aims to add to financial institutions' understanding of how RFI should be handled, questions to be asked, the purpose of the question, the role of RFIs in mitigating financial crime risk, and the benefits of effective RFIs and responses. There are many elements of the inquiry process that impact the effectiveness of RFIs, such as a lack of inquiry response, insufficient or incomplete responses, privacy concerns restricting information sharing, and delayed responses to RFIs, and or misunderstanding of the purpose of the RFI or the RFI process. That data protection point has been raised consistently in the context of RFIs and indeed in the context of information sharing generally when it comes to financial crime and the combating of financial crime. The document continues, ineffective RFIs or incomplete RFI responses can lead to increased compliance costs, inefficient utilisation of resource, increased risk for the parties involved, defensive suspicious activity or transaction reporting filings, which is a constant complaint. We've looked at that previously in the Financial Crime Weekly, that there is a general, a general awareness of the need perhaps to reform the suspicious activity reporting processes to ensure that they don't overwhelm organisations. Um, what else? Well, there are further reviews of correspondent relationships potentially resulting in restrictions in payment processing. The appendix, quite interesting, in includes a list of commonly asked RFI questions and expected responses from the respondent financial institution. The aim is to serve as a guide both to correspondent banks and respondent financial institutions. It's not a prescriptive list of questions to be asked by correspondent banks. Certainly, if you work in that sector, it's well worth reading that transaction monitoring request for information best practice guidance. It does look like it was a PowerPoint file which has been converted into a PDF, but you know, still worth reading. Now, we move on to the Financial Action Task Force, which has been busy making waves this week. First, the FATF published its mutual evaluation report on the Netherlands broadly. Netherlands gets a clean bill of health, a good assessment, indicating the Netherlands has a good understanding of its anti-money laundering and terrorist financing risks, and that the authorities use a good range of resources in their uh, anti-money laundering and terrorist financing investigations, for example, data hubs, financial intelligence unit disseminations, and interagency cooperation. Further, and this is particularly prominent because there's been a lot of work in the, on this recently, it's has a gets a very positive range of feedback in its understanding of virtual asset service provided or providers or VASPs. Um, their understanding of the risk is generally good, and the policies in place are certainly reflective of the risks that are identified and therefore posed. On the other hand, the report does identify some matters which require attention. I'm not going to go through them all, but I'll flag a couple. For example, designated non-financial businesses and professions and financial institutions should take adequate measures to implement targeted sanctions or targeted financial sanctions as the report identifies without delay. Supervisors should also place greater reliance on all the powers available to them in sanctioning any breach that they identify of anti-money laundering and countering the financing of terrorism regulations. And where possible, avoid what seems to have been a preferred 
uh, approach of informality where significant breaches have been identified. Like I said, there's much more, more, more. And you can take a look at the mutual evaluation report, which is in the link in the podcast description. Or there are plenty of reports relating to specifically to the Netherlands mutual evaluation report all over the Internet. To Germany now, where the authorities have announced the creation of a new federal financial crime agency by drawing together the 300 financial crime agencies across the country. The move comes, at least in part, as a response to critics who've said that Germany has a reputation perhaps matched only by London in the UK as a global hub for financial uh, crime, or particularly money laundering. However, I'm pretty sure that the FATF's publication of Germany's mutual evaluation report had quite a lot to do with it. This was first MER on Germany since, I think, 2010. The FATF criticised the disjointed approach to supervision, acute staff shortages, as well as the penchant of the German people to use cash for transactions. I must admit I wasn't particularly familiar with this, being as I tend not to use cash. This is a quotation from the FATF report. 75% of transactions in Germany happen in cash, and Germans have a strong social and historical attachment to cash. The FATF said that Germany had prosecuted um, 1,005 people for money laundering, but in fact it had opened 37,462 inquiries into alleged money laundering, which the FATF thought was problematic and something that needed to be addressed, which is why Germany has reacted by this overhaul and the creation of a federal financial crime agency. Now, a couple of dates for your diary. Those who can't get enough of the Financial Action Task Force, well, it's hosting a webinar on beneficial ownership transparency of legal persons, discussing uh, Recommendation 24 of the FATF 40. The webinar is on the 1st of September from uh, 1 to 2.15 Central European Summertime, and there is a link to sign up for it. And again, the link is in the podcast description. Equally, if you can't get enough of uh, beneficial ownership transparency, then you could also check out the Brookings Institute in the US, which is also hosting a similarly themed event called Anti-Corruption's Cutting Edge, New Directions in Beneficial Ownership Transparency. It's on the 7th of September from 8.30am to 10.30am EDT. There's again a link in the podcast description to sign up for it if you want to attend the webcast or if you're in the in the area, you can also attend in person because I believe it's an in-person live event. Finally, on Money Laundering This Week, something that I flagged over previous weeks in the Financial Crime Weekly podcast, and that is the regulatory activism of the Gambling Commission in the United Kingdom in bringing its house into order. This time... The gambling business, SpreadX Limited, has been fined £1.36 million for failings in both its corporate social responsibility and also for breaches of the money laundering obligations that it has imposed upon it. These combined sanctions are a common feature of the approach which the Gambling Commission has taken. Insofar as the money laundering failings are concerned, they relate to broad customer due diligence failings and failure to identify source of funds. So three elements are flagged by the Gambling Commission. First, a customer who met a 25,000 financial deposit alert had the alert for further 
review increased to £100,000 based on a self-declaration of income and an open source check. Secondly, a customer was able to deposit £365,000 and lose £284,000 over a period of three months without source of funds being sufficiently established. A customer was also able to continue depositing after providing uh, redacted bank statements in response to a request for evidence of source of funds. I suspect now they'll probably clean up their act. Now, I predicted a couple of weeks ago there would be more of these actions, and so it's proven to be. It's good to see the Gambling Commission being so aggressive in the use of its powers. Now we move on to fraud. On the uh, on the subject of predictions, I also said it was likely that there would be further action by the Insolvency Service against corporations which made fraudulent COVID-19 bounce-back loan scheme applications. So it is again this week. Although this week this is a slightly more complex story because it's bound up in alleged cryptocurrency fraud. Two corporations have been wound up by the High Court for actions relating to alleged cryptocurrency scams and further that they obtained £80,000 in total between both companies under the bounce back loan scheme despite not being entitled to any funds. This is a common theme of these bounce back loan scheme frauds whereby a company without any entitlement manages to gain a loan from the government under the scheme. The thing which it does leave certainly me to question is how quite how lax the systems and controls were in the administration of the scheme yes i get the point that they were trying to do all this quickly they were trying to respond quickly to the needs of business at this time but there seems to have been virtually no oversight at all in relation to these bounce back loan schemes it's astonishing really finally on fraud this week the government has published its response to the consultation on extending the National Fraud Initiative data matching to new purposes. The consultation was looking at the extension of the National Fraud Initiative to assist with four purposes, in addition to, of course, its fraud use. First of all, the prevention and detection of errors and inaccuracies. Secondly, the recovery of debt owed to public bodies. Thirdly, the apprehension and prosecution of offenders, and fourthly, the prevention and detection of crime generally. The government has indicated in light of the consultation that it won't proceed with extending the National Fraud Initiative to cover the four new stated purposes. Certainly at this stage it's not doing it. The government will retain its commitment to doing more to prevent and detect fraud, support bodies in enhancing their fraud response, through the use of data and analytics, and through the creation of the new Public Sector Fraud Authority. <clears throat> now, the final story this week brings us to anti-corruption. Now, this is something of an embarrassment for the British government, which has been warned this week that it may well end up on the list of shame for repeated failures to meet the requirements of the Open Government Partnership, the OPG. Well, GP, I suppose. Uh, this would be embarrassing enough on its own, but the embarrassment is compounded by the fact that the United Kingdom founded, co-founded the Open Government Partnership. Now, the body, which has 77 member states, has, it is suggested by various media outlets this week, identified the UK as failing in four of the five commitments 
made by the government in its transparency plan. Specifically, the failings relate to failing to uh, plan to tackle international corruption and illicit finance, failing to develop an open justice system, failure to improve transparency in the use of algorithms in decision-making, and failure to make health data more accessible. Needless to say, the United Kingdom government has not commented on the story. <clears throat> but that's not because there is... It has been suggested by a couple of people I've read this week that there is no UK government to comment on the story. I couldn't possibly comment on that. Anyway, that's it for this week on the Financial Crime Weekly Podcast. If you want to do so, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, wherever that happens to be, and you'll hear from me on Sunday next week with the usual roundup of all things financial crime. Have a financial crime-free week, everybody. Thank you.